0: How's everybody feeling? Jeez. What is it? Uh, Shelter in place week. End of week four? Month one? Beginning of month two? Uh, Nope, actually, beginning of week five. This is going great already. I think I've had all of this sort of utter, abject, dread, terror, horror. I can't remember what the distinction between those two things is from a literary sense, terror and horror, but I'm sure I've felt both of them. And then weirdly ranging into sort of existential boredom. <laughs> uh, and I think I'll probably talk about that all in, in good time. But the thing that most salient that I wanted to start with is I have a toothache. I don't think I've ever had a toothache before, but I was sitting down to a nice little home cooked meal a couple of weeks ago, a week ago. God, time has no meaning. Uh, a while ago and suddenly cold liquids, hot liquids, uh, cold food, hot food, like It was really tender. It's like kind of the middle of my mouth on the upper left side. I can't chew on the left side of my face right now. Um, so I'm sitting here tilting my head to the right when I drink liquids so that (laughs) the, it goes in my mouth, but doesn't touch the top of my left-hand side. (laughs) It's ridiculous. I look like a dog trying to understand a command and I'm sort of obsessing about it thinking to myself, like, I hope it doesn't get worse. And that's kind of where we're at right now, right? Like we, we are not allowed to do the things that we would normally do to just be proactive people and take care of problems because we're all supposed to be sheltering in place and, and only doing things uh, that are absolutely necessary and only going to doctor doing healthcare stuff in an emergency. So I was like beating myself up Uh, for having these feelings because they're so trite and so small and so meaningless in the, uh, in the scheme of things with everything everybody's dealing with. But then a few days ago (laughs) within, you know, 20 minutes of my latest round of like, Oh my God, my tooth. And then like, you idiot, stop thinking about your tooth. You pampered baby. My friend posted on social media that she also has had a toothache and it had been like three weeks and like all the rest of us, she couldn't go to the dentist because of all the restrictions And then she woke up in the morning, that morning, three few days ago, time has no meaning. I don't remember how long ago it was, but a while ago. And the pain was in her jaw and she had a fever. And so all of a sudden it's an emergency and she can go to the dentist. But now rather than something, you know, simple, she's on a 10 day course of antibiotics and she needs to schedule a follow up with an endodontist, which I had to look up because I don't even know what that is. Because again, I'm bad at dentist stuff but so maybe she's gonna have to have a root canal who knows. And we know, you know, and there's like all this stuff about how, you know, the mouth is the, uh, (laughs) the gateway to the gut. And the gut has all these effects on people's brains and stuff. And it's like, you know, we don't really, the fact that dental care isn't a normal part of healthcare, uh, is grotesque, but it also, and it completely ignores the absolutely, you know, central, place of dental hygiene and that sort of health with like the rest of our bodies. You know, she had a, she went to bed with a toothache and she woke up with a fever in her brain. And so I asked her about it and she said, um, it makes me mad because it's gone from a small problem to a much bigger and more expensive problem. And that struck me, right? Like that's the kind of world we live in right now. Those of us who are used to being able to do whatever we want suddenly can't. And, you know, partially that's why we're getting militia activity in North Idaho, these actual adult babies uh, trying to start a civil war because the rest of us are just trying to not kill our grandparents. Uh, smash edit from the future. I'm going to cut in here real quick. I recorded that part a couple of days ago. In the days since, the uh, world has literally exploded with uh, people holding signs saying, give me liberty or give me death in front of Baskin Robbins all over the nation. Uh, as one Twitter person said, I can't remember who. Oh, Megan Amram on Twitter said, "People just begging for the opportunity to die inside of a Dave and Buster's." So, but at the same time, while the protests seem absolutely absurd, and I think all of these expressions of gallows humor you're hearing from people, including me just now, are okay. I also don't want us to lose sight of the fact that people are terrified, and this could very well, for many people, be the only way they can express their fear over the future because uh spoiler alert the entire point of this podcast is that we don't take care of each other well enough we don't our country the richest nation in the history of the world does not do enough to care for its own so i got to figure out a way to get these episodes done more quickly because life comes at you fast and we might have a full-scale insurrection before we get to episode two Okay, back to it. But even among non-psychopaths, people who are used to being proactive with their health or their careers or whatever, we're all in limbo. And limbo is brought, you know, at least for me, a really like I was saying nauseating mix of anxiety and boredom. But in situations like Karen's, you know, this inability to get the help you need is suddenly very scary and potentially very expensive. And I think that's maybe where some of this dread comes from. The reality of not being able to help yourself or of, of identifying a problem and not being able to fix it. And then she further told me a story of a friend of hers who died from dental problems, a healthy person with healthcare who just left a dental thing too long and then died, which led to this absolutely gut-wrenching realization that this feeling of helplessness we have right now, that feels so new to so many of us and that we're all spending all day long on social media thinking about and talking about and it's everyday life for tens of millions of people. 30 million people in this country are uninsured. 40 million people live below the poverty line. There's clearly going to be some overlap there, so I don't know what like the Venn diagram looks like, but... 30 million people is 9% of the population. 40 million people is like 12% of the population. So it could be, what, up to 20 million or 20% of the population who either struggle to afford to pay their bills or who just don't have health care. And so the reason they're not going to the dentist isn't that there's a national pandemic and quarantine. It's that they just can't afford to get their tooth looked at when it starts hurting. And so it becomes catastrophically expensive, but then because they don't have the money to pay for a root canal either, what, their tooth just rots out of their mouth or they develop an abscess and either have to go to the emergency room, which is like instant bankruptcy territory, or they just die. And looking at the counter, it took me less than seven minutes and 20 seconds to go completely black pill So I apologize for that. How's your quarantine going? But I mean, the thing that's crazy is that I'm not, these aren't hypotheticals. This is the sort of thing that happens every single day under normal circumstances when there is not a virus and the American economy is humming along exactly as intended. This is happening to people every single day. And there are even more abjectly, cravenly, horrible versions of this, or I don't know, it's all equally bad, but in the case of insulin, right, a drug that was patented 100 years ago by a guy who donated the patent to the University of Toronto for a dollar, there has never been a generic equivalent because drug companies continue minutely tweaking the patent or whatever, you know, the injector, like how the insulin gets into your system. So most people are paying between 500 and and $1,000 a month to just stay alive when the actual insulin itself costs about $6 to make. And so let's get a little darker for a second. I'm spending most of my days and the people I all around me, my loved ones, my family, my wife, sounded like Borat for a second there, my wife... We're all spending the last month in, you know, various stages of terror about the future, not knowing where people's next paycheck is going to come from, not knowing when we're going to be able to go to the doctor again. And it's like, oh my God, I can't wait for this to be over. And that's a realistic expectation I have. And that most people have that this should be over soon. We expect, and to be honest, we should be able to expect that these things will open up again, that this is only temporary, that No human being, much less an entire society, could live in this state of panicked stasis for very long at all. People are freaking out at the idea of this going on for another two months, let alone a year. And that's when, like, you know, as reasonable as this panic is, my panic, and I'm sure your panic too, you think for a second about these. 40, 50, 60, 70 million people, I don't know, again, I don't know the Venn diagram, live in poverty every day or don't have health insurance or both. And it's not reasonable for them to expect this is going to get worse. Because if we go back to normal, if we just hit reset, if we just load the save game from January 2020, poof, everything's okay in middle class world again. And a considerable number of our neighbors are still massively suffering. And so we're all sitting here with our lives on pause and for those of us who haven't really experienced this before, I'm trying to figure out how I can, in good conscience, go back to normal, if there even is a normal, but to the extent that we're able to return to normal, how can I go back there knowing what this feels like every moment of the day? So I don't know if it's morbid, I don't know if it's helping, I don't know if it's self-indulgent, Tragedy cosplay, but when I sat down with the scratch track to just get my thoughts down The first thing I thought was this feeling that I'm having now that is so foreign to me and So frightening What if it never went away even for a moment? Can you fucking imagine that? So that's where my head's at I'm Luke Baumgarten, and this is Range. Episode 1, Attack of the Clones. Just kidding. Still with me? I don't know. Was that a little too heavy for uh, season one, episode one of some idiots podcast? <laughs> probably. I've been working on this for a little while now, maybe like a week trying to piece this together. It's um, insane. If anybody is a professional audio person or a, uh, just a broadcast person in any way, the way I'm going about this will probably make you, uh, it'll probably give you a panic attack. But suffice it to say, it started out a lot darker. Like, lot, lot darker. Like Dan Baumgarten, you trying to write a late career Leonard Cohen song or what? You want it darker? We kill the flame. And then it went lighter. And at one point it became a listicle. So um, apologies in advance to fans of BuzzFeed, but didn't go that direction. I've just been trying to think of for reasons I'll probably talk about later. I've thought about this project for a while and it felt like this moment when we're all locked in our houses was the time, if it was ever going to start, it needed to start. Um, And not just because I have an insane amount of time on my hands because I started hearing, you know, in isolation from various, you know, corners of my life, my friends, my family, random people I know, uh, that not only was what we're all going through right now unacceptable and kind of unbelievable and exposing how fragile our system is and how precarious so many of our lives are. But people weren't saying, oh, my God, we've got to get back to normal as quickly as possible. I mean, some people were. Obviously, that's a lot of the national discourse. That's what's happening in what remains of the presidential race. But like at the personal level, among my friends uh, and family and whatever, people were saying, we don't need to get back to normal. We need to think about something that's significantly better than normal because this came from normal. This is something that began with normalcy. Six weeks ago, America was having a normal one. And then almost overnight, things were profoundly, profoundly not normal. And when something breaks that quickly, it sort of demonstrates how rotten the underlying structure is. You know, if you have, you know, you're, live, you're, you're in your house and one day half of it caves in, you got termites or something. And So therefore, you don't want to just, like, jack the house back up and put the termite wood back in. You've got to start rebuilding from the foundation. So that was the first thing. The second thing was, you know, there's the whole why we can't have nice things meme or whatever. Just the idea that, you know, whenever there's an audacious proposal, whether it's something like Medicare for all or whether it's student debt forgiveness, or whether it's, you know, basically any program that's free at the point of service that people get to use regardless of their income level, whatever. There's always this idea that it's going to be too expensive. We can't pay for it. We're the richest nation in the history of the world, and yet somehow we can't figure out how to provide healthcare free at the point of service for everyone like countless dozens of other countries have figured out how to do, including our neighbors including countries the U.S. has had decades of embargoes against. Lots of people have been able to figure this out and yet somehow we can't. There's simultaneously this thing, it drives me nuts that we have so much chauvinism in our country. We are the best, we're the brightest, we're the leaders of the world, we're the policemen of the world. We are literally the cultural hegemon. Oh, but we couldn't possibly figure out, we're just too big. We're too diverse. We're too whatever to figure out something like universal healthcare. It's profoundly self-servingly hypocritical. And just wrong on the face. It's just demonstrably wrong. And yet it is and has been the conventional wisdom for my entire life. I'm damn near 40. uh, And so probably for two lifetimes. Like when was the last time we were seriously talking about universal health care in this country? Was it right after World War II when Britain did it? Britain figured it out. They had just been bombed to oblivion for, you know, half a decade and they were able to figure out universal healthcare. So why can't we? But of course that doesn't really get at the underlying argument that it's like too expensive for whatever reason, you know? And this is where uh, I was a failed math major and then I was a successful philosophy major. (laughs) So like, there's an idea that you can make data sort of say whatever you want. Data can conform to any sort of ideology or argument. And because we have this idea that, you know, America is a meritocracy, the and the media very much buys into that idea, we look to experts, we look to economists, we look to data scientists to say, can we do this or not? Is this possible? And generally the... The people who have think tank jobs who are writing papers about this stuff, uh, their paycheck comes from companies who, who have a vested interest in saying, no, yeah, no, we can't. It's no, no, universal health care, too expensive, for example. But that's actually what makes this such an incredible moment. Because we are literally witnessing in real time. And this happened in 2009 as well. And it it was a moment that passed by and not enough people noticed it or something. But like, we can just print money. We can just do it. We've done it before, relatively recently. Uh, let me, I'm going to pull up a clip. You're going to see what an audio stud I am. But this is going to be a clip from Ben Bernanke, the former uh, chairman of the Federal Reserve during the last crisis, 08, 09 talking about where the stimulus money back then came from. Is that tax money that the Fed is spending? It's not tax money. The banks have um, accounts with the Fed much the same way that you have an account in a commercial bank. So to lend to a bank, we simply use the computer to mark up the uh, size of the account that they have with the Fed. So it's much more akin, uh, although not exactly the same, but it's much more akin to printing money than it is to borrowing. Did a little fade in and out there. Did you catch that? That's because I'm very good at this. Um, so, I mean, it's amazing, right? Like that was 60 minutes uh, in, it looks like January 5th, 2019 is when it got posted, but it was probably earlier than that. So late 2018, uh, smash cut, I mean, 2008, sorry. And I'm not hundred percent sure that what we're doing right now is exactly the same as what happened in, in 08, 09, but functionally very, very similar. There was a decision made that because the economy was in crisis we just had to pump a bunch of money into the system and back then it was mostly to rescue banks and to rescue automakers and stuff and that was you know we saw the uh outcome of that which was record stock market growth and a unbelievable number of home foreclosures for example including I read somewhere I would need to find the citation, but the largest loss of wealth in the African-American community in ever. Good God, has it been that long, ever? And that's because the majority of wealth in you know middle and lower income households isn't in the stock market. It's in your real estate. It's the the, the home you have. If you're lucky enough to have a home, if you're a renter... There's a really good chance that your net worth hovers very close to zero, and there's also a very good chance that your net worth is actually negative. There are a staggering number of people who not only can't afford a $1,000 emergency, they have a net worth of negative zero because just to live, they take on debt or they lose chunks of their paycheck to payday lenders at insane, usurious interest rates. So that was 0809. It was something like $800 billion. Smash cut, sorry. The Emergency Economic Stabilization Act of 2008 was $700 billion. The uh, exact number isn't totally important, but I'm jumping in here to make a mental note that I definitely want to do an entire episode at some point. If you're an expert, hit me up on the Troubled Asset Relief Program, which bailed out the banks, and HAMP, which is much lesser known home affordable modification program, which was supposed to bail out homeowners, but a hundred percent did not. So it's a object lesson in giving a shit about big banks and not about everyday people. And I'm not sure how we're going to look forward toward whatever recovery we have ahead of us without looking back to the recoveries that utterly failed, you know, just a decade ago. Okay, cool, back to it. Hope to suck less in the future. Fast forward to 2020, the number is now, I think, 2 trillion or 2.2 trillion that we just printed, to use Ben Bernanke's word. But really, it was more like we moved a decimal point. We just added money to accounts. So this is not the part of the podcast where I reveal myself to be a deficit scold or something like that. My point is, whenever we wanna do something, and somebody tells you it's too expensive, we can't possibly do it, just immediately call bullshit because we can do it. We can literally make money. That's what countries do. That's what treasuries do. That's what federal reserves do. They decide when to make and not make money. This probably needs to be its own episode. I don't want to talk about it now. I'm definitely not an expert, so I'm not going to do this episode until I can actually talk to somebody who knows something about monetary policy and inflation. But for what I'm reading and understanding, the only issue with a government making money is inflation. And for a number of reasons, <laughs> like one of which being the fact that our recovery from 2008 wasn't much of a recovery. It was kind of a paper recovery. It was kind of like the stock market's doing better, but most normal people aren't. Inflation is not really a concern right now, as far as I understand it. So I want to talk about that more later, but this is just a point. What I'm saying is, if you hear an audacious plan that would make your life massively easier, whenever I'm thinking about these things, I'm thinking less about myself and I'm thinking more about my parents, like what they had to do to raise my brother and I, what they did to, had to do to put us through school just to support us. If you hear a plan, in my case, that would have made my parents' lives insanely easier than the one they had to live in the 90s and uh, 80s and 90s and 2000s, And the response is, we can't pay for that. It's too expensive. Just recognize that that person who's making that argument has either drank the Kool-Aid or they're making the Kool-Aid. And look, if you've drank the Kool-Aid. I totally understand it because it's been, this is all we've heard our entire lives. My entire life is that you can't do this. We have to end welfare as we know it. We can't have universal healthcare. Smash cut. We have to gut social security. I completely forgot about that one. Maybe the reason I forgot it is because those attempts have been happening my entire life. And those attempts have been bipartisan in nature. I just want to point out that there are two people still running for president at this point, And one of them has been advocating to cut social security for 40 years and that person is not the republican just throwing that out there i promised i would do better but i don't think i can keep that promise so back to the show and that's what makes right now so incredible and that's what made 09 incredible too and it felt like a missed opportunity in hindsight but right now we are living through a moment where the system is sufficiently in crisis that the people who have the power to pull the big levers, the really big levers, are sufficiently scared that they're pulling those levers. And they're pulling, so they're dropping the veil and saying, we've said that we can't do this because it's too expensive, but you know what? Now our livelihood is in jeopardy or whatever. So yeah, we're we're gonna pull the big lever. So let's not forget that the lever has been pulled. If nothing else comes of this, if this is only a one episode podcast, please, for the love of God, do not forget that the lever was pulled, cash was injected into the system and people were helped, right? Those people were mostly corporations, like basically the bigger the business you are, the more help you got and on down the line. But we all just got 1200 bucks put into our bank accounts. That's like real money. We just had a presidential candidate who was surprisingly popular, but treated by the mainstream media as a crank because he was advocating universal basic income, giving everybody a little bit of money just to help them get by. Well, guess what? This is a form of universal basic income. It's not like an every month thing the way Andrew Yang was uh, advocating, but it is, you know, hey, guys. Hey, America. It's, uh, it's been a little hard. So you can have a little UBI as a treat. Just a little treat. Hey, there's another episode. Maybe we do a UBI episode at some point. Who knows? I'm kind of getting sidetracked by examples here, but this is the point. I wanted to start this thing now because once the crisis starts winding down, once we start going back to work, once things start returning to you know something approaching normalcy, the overweening dominant narrative is going to be that oh, that was an emergency thing? We can't do that again. I want us all to be thinking, yeah, we actually absolutely can. That doesn't mean that I want us to like start implementing a monthly UBI right away. I don't actually think UBI is the first thing we should do. It's not about UBI per se. What it is about is, again, the richest nation in the history of the world, which controls its own monetary policy, this isn't like, you know, Greece is a part of the EU and the European Union controls the monetary policy. So Greece can't just spend its way out of trouble. America is fiscally sovereign. We get to decide whatever we want to do with our money and our monetary policy. If we decided, yeah, you know what? We're going to do universal health care starting now. We could absolutely fund that. Smash cut. Damn it. Sorry. Uh, the other way we could fund this, obviously, is just by taxing rich people. But I guess the reason I'm so focused on Ben Bernanke's printing money thing is that taxing people at a level that's more fair and more commensurate with their income seems like the least likely thing possible. But let's also just keep in mind that we could raise taxes today and pay for universal healthcare tomorrow. Okay, back to it. So let's start talking about it. Let's start building support, building the intellectual framework for why these things actually are a good idea, why they are not just possible, but morally correct. That's part of what I've been thinking about so much here is like, I have been pretty blessed. I've worked in creative fields almost my entire career. I was a journalist for almost 10 years. Uh, and then I went into, did some work in advertising. And and now we have a creative firm uh, that my friends and I run. A different group of friends and I, started a nonprofit a while ago to help young and emerging artists uh sort of navigate the landscape build community stuff like that i've worked around creativity my whole life and if there's one thing i know with confidence there's nothing there's not much that i know with confidence but one thing that i do know is you can't do anything in life unless you can imagine it so that's where you start that's where that's where Any action begins is with the ability to imagine the outcome and you cannot imagine anything in an environment where the realm of the possible is foreclosed on every side, right? The least creative space you could ever be in is a world where you've been told whenever you have an idea that no, it can't be done. No, this can't be done. No, this can't be done. You stop thinking imaginatively and you start falling into line. You start, your life gets on rails and you just start going forward. You stop believing that better things are possible. You stop believing you have agency in the world beyond whatever narrow bounds you've been put in by that society. You know, we all feel, I think, in 2020 that like being a housewife in the 50s, was a brutally, brutally prescribed place to be. Women could only imagine life within a certain bound, right? I spent a lot of time at my grandma's house growing up uh, and she would obsessively watch Perry Mason, this woman who was the literally the sun around which our entire family revolved and was an incredible, loving, giving person who not just took care of her own kids but invited in whatever random strays from the neighborhood and treated them all like family. Incredible mother, incredible grandmother, but she wanted to be fucking Perry Mason. She wanted to be a lawyer. And that was not an Avenue open to her at that time. Similar black people living in the Jim Crow South, right? That gave way eventually to the civil rights movement. Um, I think what I'm thinking about here. And, you know, this is a show that I'm doing from my attic in Spokane, Washington. So who knows what sort of a reach this is going to have. But the idea is at some point. People pushed back against those constraints and said, no, this is not okay. We have to be able to imagine more for ourselves. And then they started talking and they started organizing. And I don't know exactly what order that stuff happened in on a case by case basis. It probably happened a million different ways in a million different places, Smash cut. You're going to have to deal with my sleepy time voice for a second. I recorded this next chunk at two in the morning when I was trying not to wake up Ginger, my wife, and this was the best take I've been able to manage. So it's going to get a little sexy here for a second, but I'm pretty sure that no matter what, regardless of the individual circumstances, a person or people said, Hey, the way things are, isn't working. It's not good. It's not morally correct. And not only can we say that the way things are is wrong? We can imagine something better for not just ourselves, but for everybody. Now that I'm thinking about it, that's more or less exactly the I have a dream speech. So maybe this isn't as unique an insight as I thought, but the point remains. I honestly don't believe this is going to start with a candidate or even a campaign because candidates win or lose campaigns succeed or fail but moral imagination is the thing that persists. That doesn't mean we don't organize. It doesn't mean we don't fight. It doesn't mean we don't get behind causes. We just don't mistake any individual battle for the war. And most days I don't feel particularly good at anything, but if I do have any skills, it's this. Talking to people, researching stuff, thinking through ideas, and presenting them. So that's kind of what I'm imagining here. Who knows? This is, you know... Season one, episode one, it'll probably change. I probably don't want to talk about policy all the time. Maybe I want to talk about art at some point. My wife likes to, in her work with the arts organization, likes to talk about putting food in people's bellies and also feeding their souls. And, you know, it's going to take all of that. And there's some really talented people in Spokane. I don't know. So maybe we'll showcase some of that too. You know, maybe you get an episode about... Ubi, and after you eat your vegetables, you get a little interview with Sharma Shields as a treat, or Sean Vestal, or somebody who knows. As I'm sitting here recording this uh, aspirational, hopeful portion of the program, I'm looking out my window. Uh, I live two doors down from an elementary school, and uh, seeing something that would have never happened a couple months ago, and in different times you might think would never happen. Uh, The school employees have been packing up brown bag lunches for the kids who can't go to school but need to still eat, obviously, because we know that school lunch programs are a massive, massive part of uh, a lot of, you know, more economically challenged kids, total caloric intake. We were able to just flip a switch and get those meals going for people, even though schools shut down. Okay. On top of that, for a while, this was a pickup program where the, you had to come to the school to get those things picked up and they had a whole schedule and it was really cool. It was a whole, they overnight, the school that I live next to switched its program to, you know, go from educating kids to feeding them. But then today for the first time, and I don't know if it's a new program, or if I'm just noticing it, there's an STA bus a Spokane transit bus parked out front and they're loading those meals onto the bus. So they're taking them somewhere. So now not only is this a paradigm shift for the school, but now the local transit authority is in the game as well, helping deliver these meals somewhere. Could you have imagined that happening a month ago? So we've already opened up the realm of what's possible. The doors open and it might just be a crack right now. It's supposed to be, you know, time-based. It's like, oh, Joe Biden's saying we, no one should ever have to pay for coronavirus care. So the doors open a crack. Let's kick it open. Let's say, no, no one should ever have to pay at the point of sale for any care. If you shouldn't die of coronavirus because you can't pay, you shouldn't die of cancer because you can't pay. The other amazing thing about Spokane Transit is that they made all fares free for the time being. So again, let's, we've seen what it might be like to have public transit free at the point of service for the people that need it the absolute most, right? And think about that. In the timeline, people were like, oh my God, I wouldn't want to be on a bus right now. Yeah, obviously, because if you're getting on a bus right now, it means you really need that bus really need it it's maybe the only way you can get around maybe you need to go see a sick parent on the other side of town maybe you need to go to maybe you're feeling like you might have coronavirus yourself and you have no way to get to the hospital because a lot of our housing in this town is not in the central core not near the hospital district it's up way up north or way south or northeast And so if you don't have a car, how are you going to get to the hospital to get checked? Because again, urgent care does not want coronavirus cases. You're going to the emergency room if you think you have coronavirus. So how are you going to get there? So right now we have, at a local level, made transit free. And I think that's amazing. It wasn't just like, hey, for the time being, it was like, we're going to make transit free until further notice. So let's kick that door open, man. Let's talk about what it would be like to have free public transit in Spokane, Washington. I think it was Eugene, Oregon just did it like a couple months ago, so it's possible. And then let's also think like, not just can we do it, but what would it do for our society? What would it do for those people who really need mobility, right? So that's the idea right now as far as I've uh, been able to sketch it out. Sounds kind of ambitious, and that scares me to death, obviously. But I'm also not trying to like put too much pressure on myself. I've been thinking about this for uh, three years now or maybe even, yeah, about three years. And something, my perfectionism, my what can I add to the conversation, my I used to be really good at this. I was a journalist. I used to be really good at this, but I haven't done it in a really long time. Can I even do it anymore? All of those things have sort of creeped in. Um, until now. And for whatever reason, this felt like a moment where I'm like, I just have to do this. If I'm ever going to do it, I have to do it now. The conditions seem perfect. If they get any more perfect, the world might explode. So I'm going to figure it out as I go. (laughs) So, uh, if that terrifies you feel free to never listen to another one of these, but, um, if you just heard me ramble for however long this ends up being, and uh, you think to yourself, "Yeah, why not? I'll, uh, I'll hang in for a little while, see what, uh, see what we can all think about together," then um, fuck it, man. Welcome to range.